Well, good morning, Mercy Road, and good morning to those joining us online. My name is Mike Lotzer, and today we are finishing a series called Unoffendable. And this three-part series has been very timely and very difficult, if I'm being honest. Uh, Pastor Chad and I were chatting, and he, he agrees it's hard to uh, preach on a subject that is so hard to apply, especially in this season, because in our culture, at the present moment, we are at a high level of offense with one another, with uh, government officials, with different worldviews, and it would be so easy to de-evolve into this easily offended, highly outraged, constant state of anger. If you haven't been with us in this series, just by way of quick review, we said in this series that being easily angered, being easily offended is foolish, it's fruitless, and it's hypocritical. Let, let me just show you briefly what we mean by this. First of all, it is foolish. Do not be eager in your spirit to be angry, for anger resides in the heart of fools. We said, you know, it's not wrong to be angry, but it is foolish to let anger stay the night. And some of us, we have gotten in the habit of that. When anger rises up in us, we don't bring that to God. We let it sleep over. And not just one night, but days, and days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and we grow into contemptuous people that make foolish decisions. We, we said last week, or, or Pastor Chad did, that it's a hypocritical thing. You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But our tendency, as Chad reminded us, is to look at everybody around us and say, that's the thing you need to change. Jesus says with a graphic metaphor, it would be like trying to take a little bit of sawdust, a speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a two by four shoved in your own. And so last week was a reminder to judge in the way that we want to be judged and to start here. Clean your own room before trying to change the world and tell everybody else what is wrong with them. And then we said that it's not just hypocritical and it's not just foolish, it is fruitless. Dallas Willard put it best, a theologian that has passed away now. There is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. Do you believe that? You know, when I first read that, I don't know if I did. The more I put it through the grid of my own life experience in scripture, I really do believe that is true. I really do believe it is true. Today, we are finishing with a subject that, that I think is profound and profoundly difficult, as if the last few weeks have not been difficult, this call to be unoffendable, not easily angered, full of grace and forgiveness towards our fellow creatures. Today, we're talking about being unoffendable towards God himself. Now, think about that. What is that spirit of offense in you? Where does that come from? Why does it spring out so easily of your heart and my heart? My hunch is this. We, all the way back to our spiritual ancestors who were tempted to be offended at God in the garden, are easily offended at God. And when we let that offense, that anger, stay the night, put up residence in our heart, it makes it pretty easy to be offended at one another. So we're tackling this subject and we're turning to Matthew's gospel. A gospel, if you're new to church, is the account, the written account of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew's account, and we will look at chapter 11, 2 through 6. Reading from the NIV, now 
When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And then the zinger, verse six, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The first thing to notice, I think, in this text is, is something that hurts a little bit if we think about the implications. Are you ready for it? Even the best of us can become offended at God. If you were to read that little bit of scripture and keep on going to verse 11, it says this. It says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus goes on to explain that John had a specific role. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, he is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's the cousin of Jesus. His birth coincides alongside the birth of Christ. And his birth was meant to be a signal of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And he had a message. He'd go into the wilderness and he'd print. He, he would preach, uh, repent. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. He was fearless. He wasn't afraid to live differently in a culture that wanted him to conform. He wasn't afraid to live a life that did not compromise, that, that lined up with what God's will was for his life. And Jesus said, you know, people who are born among women, out of all the people, past, present, future, he's the best. I mean, have you guys been born? Were you born by a woman? So that, that kind of... That's everybody, right? He said, like, anybody who's ever existed, he's, he's tops. He's the best. Even the best of us, it would seem, flirt with this temptation to be offended at God. And you have to cut John some slack. He's languishing in prison. If you were to read in uh, John's gospel, there is this part where John basically says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. It's really powerful. John is very clear who the Messiah is. God shows it to him. He actually asks for a sign, and God says, the one on whom the dove will descend. And the dove descends. And John ends up baptizing Jesus, and he sees the ministry of Jesus take off, and he realizes that his whole life's purpose is to proclaim that this is God's son coming in the flesh, reaching out to us, the very visible image of the invisible God coming for us, coming to rescue us. And yet John had some preconceived notions about what rescue might look like. And that leads us to our second point. We get offended at God when God does not meet our expectations. John had certain expectations. You have certain expectations. I have certain expectations. Expectations about what? Well, about how life will go. Isn't it true there have been times in your life where you've kind of looked up to the heavens and said, this isn't how it's supposed to be, God. You see, I had a plan. It's almost as if we're like the metaphorical writer who wrote a beautiful uh, draft masterpiece of literature, and we bring it to God like a writer would bring it to an editor. And what we want to hear is, 
This was magical. It was perfect. You couldn't add to it. You had a few spelling errors. I've cleaned those up, but let's send it to print because you are a literary genius. But instead, what we hear is it's going to look very different than the chapter outline that you have provided here. The storyline that you suggest is nice, but this one is going to be better and it's going to be different. And you're reading the edits and you're saying, I don't know about this. Some of us, to make it a little more personal, really thought that our life should have gone in a better direction, a more favored direction. And we wake up and we wondered, God, where are you? I expected certain things from you. I served you and you, you didn't show up. And, and how could you let him die, her die? How could you let me get sick? Why didn't you heal me? I had certain expectations, God. For John, the greatest born among women, you know, that's a big deal. Even the best of us, he says, I'm really clear who you are, Jesus. I myself have seen and testified that this is the son of God. And then he flips to, are you the expected one or should we look for another? Prison can do that to you. I've got this drain pipe issue right outside of my house in the gutter system. And when the heat kicks on in the morning, it warms up the roof and the gutters. And, and at 6.30 a.m., and I've troubleshooted it, and it doesn't help. And sometimes, you know, for a blessed second, I fall back asleep because there's a lull. And then right about the time you're sleeping, that's what I, pic- that's what I picture with John in the ancient prison. Ancient prisons were terrible places. You starve to death oftentimes if your friends or your disciples or the people who, who you're related to didn't bring you food and care for you. They didn't feed you. And I just picture him laying in this damp, cold place with a drip. His whole life had been a crescendo, a trajectory towards the coming kingdom of God. He made sacrifices, yes. He he, he was obedient when it hurt, yes. And yet he saw God fulfilling what God had promised. He saw Jesus teach the crowds. He saw some of the miracles. And all of a sudden, because he does the right thing, he's unjustly put in prison by Herod, a guy who is just drenched with hypocrisy, who, uh, a would-be religious leader who, who, who plays hard and fast with every rule. And John calls him out, and now he's in prison on death row. And, and he's got a lot of time to think, and the drips keep coming. And he goes, God, I thought it'd be different than this. If this is the Son of God, why doesn't he show up in power? You see, at, the, at that time in history, the Jewish people really believed that the coming Messiah was going to come, but when he did come, he would throw off the shackles of the military might of Rome, and he would restore Israel to its ancient glory, some version of the best hits album of the past, King David the best of King Solomon, military might, national autonomy, prosperity, a light to the nations. And yet here comes this itinerant, poor Jewish rabbi who was born in obscurity, born in a manger, comes in a way that the world could never expect. Now, John's a scholar in the the, the scrolls of Isaiah, the prophet that forewarns the coming of the Messiah. And so he knows how to read the, the prophetic text, and he's saying, I could see how this would line up with a military takeover. I could see how this scripture would bring in the glory, but he's not reading it correctly. You see, John has certain expectations about how God should act. 
And in the drip of prison, he concludes, this is not how it was supposed to go. Maybe the drip is real in your life. Maybe it's the drip of looking back on your childhood and saying, I can't believe God allowed the abuse to happen. Maybe it's looking at your career and saying, I can't believe, God, that, that I would just hit such a dead end or that they would fire me. Maybe it's looking at an adult child and saying, I thought I did everything right. How could they have walked away from everything I trained them up in or looking at your marriage partner of X many years who said, it's just done. I'm just not that into you. It's over. And you're saying, God, this isn't how the script was supposed to go. It feels like a cold drip. This goes against all of my expectations. Where are you? Even the best of us can become offended at God. And we get offended at God when he does not meet our expectations. Now, it is worth asking, why would God show up exactly as we expect in our lives? Why would he save us in the way that we could anticipate? I had this fascinating opportunity to work on a level one trauma unit as a chaplain in the army, Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and the ER doctors were special forces uh, captains and doctors, and so they're a rather intense version of an ER doc, and they would bring in these people who, who were dying on the table, terrible gunshot wounds or car accidents, and, you know, the chaplain's just supposed to provide spiritual, you know, comfort there, but you're also another set of hands, and you have some basic medical training, and so they'd start yelling at me to do something or breathe with this ball or help with this, and half the time I didn't really understand what they were saying, and, and they don't like that. They yell at you, and it would be very comical had I, in that moment, started to say, you're not caring for this patient in the way that I expected. You see, I've, I've gone through some minimal medic training, and I don't think that's a proper dressing. I don't think that incision is right. I don't think your wording is correct there. I think you should do it differently. You see, that would be arrogant. It would be ignorant. It would be laughed at. And yet, are we any different when we look at the Lord of all creation who didn't have a beginning, won't have an end, perfect embodiment of love and justice and truth, and we say, that's not how my life should have gone. You should have made me taller. I don't like my metabolism. I don't like my IQ. I don't like my family. I don't like my prospects. I deserve more. I served you hard and you should show up now that I have the cancer diagnosis in the way that I want you to show up, on the timeline that I want you to show up. And John, the best of us, is sitting in prison and saying, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And Jesus says, you tell me, John. You're the expert in Isaiah. I'm healing I'm restoring sight. Lepers are being cleansed. Lives are being changed. All this points to something. Isaiah pointed to it. You tell me, John, best of us. Blessed is he who is not offended on behalf of me. Are you offended because God has not met your expectations? I have been. And I need to confess that and repent of that. Like not a one-time deal. That's a thing that happens in my life and yours. Indeed, we do get offended at God when he doesn't meet our expectations. But we also get offended at God when God lets us suffer with no explanation. And, and this is maybe your deal. 
it's a lot of our deal. Because that's really at the essence what, what he's experiencing in prison. John wasn't just confused. He was suffering unjustly in prison with no explanation as to why. In the ancient world, people visited prisoners to keep them alive. Jesus's, uh, rather John's disciples were visiting him, bringing him food, but Jesus was not visiting him. He was doing the miracle thing. He was doing the public teaching thing. And so John says, I thought my whole life was to point to you. I've given everything for you, and you are distant. Does God feel distant to you today, Christian? You know, C.S. Lewis writes extensively about how it's very frequently the case when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and we're a new believer, there's, there's this real tangible sense that he's close to us. There's passion, kind of like a new relationship, a romantic relationship. And oftentimes it's the case that we go through a prolonged season where he feels really far away from us. And this can happen over and over in the life of development of the believer, where I thought you were so close to me, I could sense you, it was intimate, I, I, I was assured by your presence, and now you feel far from me. The Psalms are full of this. As David goes up and down through these things. Now, Lewis concludes that this is an intentional thing where God is building our faith. He's training us. He's cross-training us. He's saying, are you worshiping the feeling? Or do you really love me for me? Are you willing to walk through some mystery, some darkness, some uncomfortableness, some pain? With no explanation. You know, you can handle a lot of pain if you know what, what it's for. Right? I mean, if you're going in for surgery and you know it's life-saving and you know, you know there's going to be recovery and PT afterwards, if you know it all makes sense and the tumor has to be removed and I get it and the doctor explained it and I didn't understand everything, but I get the gist, I can handle the pain. But that chronic pain or that acute pain where you have no idea if it'll ever get better and you don't know if it's purposeful, that's the worst, I think. Anybody else with me? Apparently John is. Have you, do you guys remember those commercials for deodorant, sure, unsure? You know, like people are like walking around and jogging, giving a little PowerPoint presentation, and then they raise their hand and they have the armpit stain, and it goes, sure, sure, unsure, unsure. This is an old school commercial. It was very effective. They ran it for multiple years. John goes from sure, the kingdom of God's coming. It's all going to be great. I'll give my life for you, Jesus unsure just in a moment it was realistically weeks or months in prison but but that's what pain without a very clear explanation seems to do to humans it at least gets us to flirt with a spirit of offense towards god to become easily angered to let anger stay the night to, to start to mumble and grumble in our heart and say, God, I can't believe you didn't give me what she has, what he has. I can't believe I'm sitting in this pain. How could you have let this happen to me? It hurts so much. You feel distant. I went through some uh, cognitive behavioral therapy after my last tour in Iraq, and it was a moment that I remember with my therapist where I finally came to the conclusion I was angry at God for having let me see some of the horrors of war that I saw. And it was embarrassing. I didn't want to admit it to the therapist. They knew that I was a Christian and I, I 
requested a, a Christian counselor. Now, I'm a trained pastor. I have an MDiv. I, I know I shouldn't feel that way. I know how ridiculous it is to be mad at my creator for letting me walk through some pain. But it took me really thinking carefully about where my heart really is to say, deep down, I'm still kind of offended. Like, why didn't you spare me from that moment? Because it, it's had some psychological ripple effects on me and my relationships. God, why did you let that happen? Now, now that's a dramatic example, but it happens in my life on the micro too. And it happens in your life on the macro and the micro. Do a little inventory, Mercy Road. Do a little inventory, Christian. What are those past traumas, those memories, those disappointments, or that current chronic pain or disappointment that, that cause you, if you're honest in your heart of hearts to say, God, why? How could you do anything with this? God, it's not fair. If you're really a good father, you wouldn't let me go through this. You wouldn't let me feel the drip in prison. Or at least you tell me how it's going to end and why this drip matters and how it can be leveraged in your glory and your kingdom. But what does Jesus say to John the Baptist? You tell me, John. I'm doing what I, Isaiah said I would do. He doesn't say, I know it's hard for you, John. The prison thing doesn't make sense in your paradigm, but here are the five incredible things that will come out of that. He doesn't tell John. And so John has a choice. He can stoke that offense, that hurt, that anger, and it can turn into contempt and watch out for contempt, my friends. We've talked about this in the series. If you let anger and offense build up into a lifestyle, a habit, a way of being, a thing that you indulge in, right when you wake up in the morning, every time you're slighted by somebody else, every time somebody cuts you off, you will grow into a contemptuous person. You will become more isolated because contempt comes across very vividly on faces. And other people are trained to see it and they back away from it. Nobody wants a relationship with someone who has contempt for them and for everybody else. And where does it all come from? I believe it comes very subtly from a contempt towards our Heavenly Father. Is God asking you to obey in some area of your life? Make sense to you? A lot of the contempt that develops in our life comes from the dissidence of knowing that I really shouldn't do this thing, or I really should go do this thing, or I really should forgive this person, or I really should lay this idol down, but saying, no, I don't understand why. I know I should deep down. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you, but oftentimes the Holy Spirit's not going to spell that out. Some of the most unhappy followers of Jesus Christ are people who will, of course, be with him for eternity because they've fully embraced the forgiving love of the cross of Christ. But they are people who have made a habit out of saying, I only obey if I understand completely why. And I've been one of those people in different seasons of my life, and I imagine many of you have too. Now think for a moment how crazy that is. Would a 
wise parent or leader be entirely predictable to those they love? If you're raising small children or grandparenting small children, it's really strange if the kid understands exactly why you tell them to do that. And let's take it even more simplified. Has anybody ever trained a dog in here effectively? And before you feel like, how dare the preacher compare me to a dog? Well, the difference between a dog and a really intelligent human being is vast. But surely the difference between a really intelligent human being and a God who never had a beginning and never has an end and made the person is a lot bigger. And so just for a moment, think about dog training. When you teach a dog to sit, to stay, to come, to not run out and get hit by a car in traffic, to not eat something that would be toxic for it, there has to be that moment in, in the dog's brain where it's like, I'm not buying this, right? I think you're trying to keep me from something out there in the street. I think I could probably catch that car and have, have fun with it, right? You kind of see it in dogs' faces. They're very transparent. They're like, I don't really understand why you want me to heal. Why don't you heal? But of course, the master knows why. Rick Warren's famous for saying, when it comes to obeying God in some of the more mysterious areas, like sexuality, like telling the truth, like finances and how we live with open hands, it would be akin to an ant understanding the internet. We're just ill-equipped to understand exactly why. And so we're given the choice. We can obey the commands of God and trust him and just offer that up on his altar. Say, I don't get it all, but I love you and I'm going to do it. Or we can sit in defiance and say, until you explain it all to me, I won't do it. So how do we become unoffendable towards God? That's the whole question of the series. We want to become men and women who are remarkably, refreshingly unoffendable. It's not that we don't see injustice and speak into it. It's not that we're pushovers and let people run all over us. But we don't respond in spite and anger. We respond in love, speaking the truth in love. We build up each other. How do we become known as the most unoffendable people on the planet, well, it starts by becoming unoffendable towards God. It really does. How do we do that? Fourth and lastly, three words. We admit, we remind, we trust. And I believe that most Christians listening to this could write this point themselves by your experience. Admit you have a sinful inclination to become offended at God. And before you get offended at that, how dare you call me a sinner? Think about it. He knows you. He knows you. He's sustaining you right now. You're just done if he doesn't keep you alive right now. I mean, are you beating your heart? Did you design your lungs and spinal cord and the complexities that keep your frontal cortex going? Like, no. So why would we think that being offended at him would be anything but wrong? So you admit that. There's a word for that theologically. It's confession. God, I'm sorry. I have this weird tendency to be offended at you. I know it's weird. It's illogical, but it's in there. And, and I take a lot of heart that it was in John the Baptist because you said he was the best. 
And then you remind yourself, and you do this in prayer. You talk to your heavenly Father who loves you. You say, God, you're God, I'm not. This is so basic, but I need to remind myself in your presence on a minute-to-minute basis, you're God, I'm not. I'm going to let you be God. And then you trust that God is both good and great. Do you guys remember that prayer? God is good, God is great. Let a, or wait, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And if you're a pastor's kid, you go real fast. God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for his food. Pray for the PKs out there. You trust that God is both God, capable and kind. Now, human beings, because of sin in our heart, we tend to kind of go into two camps. Either we're really capable, we're skillful and competent, uh, we've got that killer instinct to get stuff done, we're very proficient, or we're super kind and good. And so in our earthly logic, we tend to think God has to be one or the other because there's all these prisons out there and drips out there and pain without explanation out there and brokenness of sin. So maybe God's really capable, but he's not that nice. He lets us go through it. Or maybe he's super, super nice, but he's kind of not very good at his job. The God of the Bible is both. He's good, and he's great. And I have to believe John, in prison, came to that conclusion. Interestingly enough, John would die in prison. He would die before he could see the fulfillment of Isaiah. He would die wondering and wrestling. I I thought he was going to come and relieve the pressure on Rome. I thought I'd be right at the front row to see it all happen. My whole life has been to declare that this is the Messiah. He could not foresee that the victory of the Son of God had less to do with one little culture, one little point in time, and much, much more to do with all of human history. He could not foresee that he wouldn't die on a throne. He would die on a block of wood that represents shame, and in so doing, reconcile all that is broken in us to a good and loving God. There's this weird little bit at the end of verse 11, you know, the the verse that says, of those born of women... None is greater than John the Baptist. But then what what does it say? It says, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? The way up is down. John was given the gift of suffering just like Jesus would suffer. Remember the part where two disciples argue with Jesus before his execution? Hey, when you come into your glory, could I sit at your right and I sit at your left? Actually, there was a helicopter mom that was involved in that conversation as well. But they were jockeying for power. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. To sit at my right and left, to be great in the kingdom, is to embrace the cross, embrace the suffering. And so just maybe... John, feeling like he was left out to dry, was being given the greatest honor, eternally speaking. Just maybe when when God felt so distant, he was actually closer than those he was physically with. And just maybe, you, in whatever prison of pain you're experiencing, by choosing not to be offended at God, might just see, in the long, grand scheme of things, that God is honoring you 
not hurting you. That God loves you. He's not angry at you. And that God is both good and he is both great. That he has a plan for this world and he comes in unexpected ways. Friends, I invite you to join us uh, next week as we start a new sermon series called Christmas Comforts. And it's a little bit of a play on what typically comforts us at Christmas. A lot of that has been stripped away with 2020, if we're being honest. And what we're looking at is the character of Jesus, the kind of Savior that we need, tenderness, empathy, a Savior who can bring real assurance. And so for the next three weeks leading up to Christmas, to the character of the Savior. You don't want to miss it, whether that's online or in person. Now would you just pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for John the Baptist, for his passion and his honesty, wrestling with this tendency that we all have. Lord, we collectively ask for your forgiveness for the times where we have harbored offense towards you. Help us to be men and women who grow less and less offended, more and more gracious and self-aware. Help us to bring your kingdom in our place and time, not like we expect it to come, but how you want it to come. In Jesus' name, amen.